What I love most about reading, it gives you the ability to reach higher ground and keep climbing. Oprah. I'm Kayla, and that was Brandy, and you're listening to Two Bitches Reading Books. I thought that you would love that quote because <laughs> because this fucking book. <laughs> I don't want to climb anywhere except back in bed, but whatever. I, I saw this quote this morning because obviously I waited till the last second to find a quote, just like we waited to the last second to finish the book. But um, <laughs> I'm looking at this quote, and I'm like, this would have been the quote like for the first episode of the book when we were like, I can't wait to be better people. And now I'm like, I shouldn't have read chapter nine. <laughs> I cannot wait to get your take on that. Okay. <laughs> oh my gosh. You know, what's so funny is I feel like I barely remember six, seven, and eight now after reading chapter nine, I've read it twice now to try to see if I felt differently about it after last night, but I'm still taking the same takeaway. So let me see what my first note in chapter six is. Chapter six is you're wrong about everything, but so am I. I still in chapter six, like I love everything that he says in chapters one through eight. Like he's perfectly cynical, just like me. My, <laughs> my first note on this chapter though is page 116. And he's talking about um, how each individual gets to decide what is enough and I just felt like that was really fucking empowering his personal story that he's talking about at this point is like his first breakup and he thought that they'd be together forever like you do like with your first boyfriend or girlfriend and um realized that sometimes love isn't enough and then he was like wait a second is love enough maybe it just wasn't enough for her and I but maybe it will be enough for me and someone else if that's what we decide so I thought that was really empowering before he pulled the rug out from under me well I did a couple like sarcastic notes on here (laughs) (laughs) but like my first real one that's not sarcastic is um I'm constantly reevaluating myself it's on page 116 it's like the last chapter or the last paragraph um just as present mark can look back on past marks every flaw and mistake one day future mark will look back on present mark's assumptions including the contents of the book and notice similar flaws And that will be a good thing because this will mean I have grown. So I'm just always looking back at like things I've done. I'm like, oh, I could have done this better. So then I just try and strive for it better. One thing I really did take out of this chapter that I really liked was everybody is wrong. You are wrong about something. I'm wrong about something. But just like everyone's wrong. There's nobody right. Like your opinion isn't right. And so like my opinion's not right. So like that really like woke me up and I was like holy shit and then he was like no one knows what they're doing we all just fake it <laughs> what was I just posting about yesterday <laughs> but I that really resonated with me too and it, like made me think about I'm sure you've heard me say a million freaking times before that I don't know what I like but I know what I don't like and I felt like you know that resonates with me because that's kind of the way I think anyway I'm much yep. better at deciding what's not good than what is good Yes. Because you know what? What is good could be good today and not be good tomorrow. I don't fucking know. Who knows? You know, Joe B seems great right now, but he wrote a lot of shitty laws back in the day. A lot yes, of he them, did. He was yeah. proud of it. Yeah, and he was hella wrong. Yeah. I, I liked this chapter, though. What were your sarcastic comments up to this point? Okay, <laughs> so um, it was like about the doctors slicing arms open. It's like cure diseases. <laughs> oh, yeah. I said... And I said, trying that because my colitis. And then it said, uh, women believe. <laughs> <Trying that. laughs> 
said women believe that rubbing dog urine on their face had anti-aging benefits and i said i bet men told them that i bet they did but you know what? we still rub some gross shit on our face too so just don't really look too deep into what all those ingredients are especially exactly. in the expensive stuff exactly and then there was another one it says washington bc they had somehow traveled back in time when the dinosaurs lived because after all bc was a long time ago I said FDA admin hotla. I don't even know what the hell that was. <laughs> I must have been high or something. That's so funny. I thought that was so cute. Like, that's such like a little kid way to think. I remember being younger. I was like two years old and Billy Ray Cyrus like put out Achy Breaky Heart and that was my husband. You have no idea. <laughs> and I remember sitting in front of the TV and thinking, if I push the TV over and it breaks... Billy Ray Cyrus will come out and be in my living room. And I remember thinking very, very hard about how I would do this. Like, obviously he had to be on the TV when I broke it or then nobody would come out. Right. And I had to do all my mom was asleep because she'd be pissed if I broke the TV, even if the end goal was to get Billy Ray Cyrus out. So I remember being in my little child brain, like (laughs) thinking about breaking my mom's TV to get Billy Ray Cyrus out. So anyways, uh, Washington, B.C. before the dinosaurs. That makes sense to me. That is a little kid way to think. That is. It is. I did highlight some stuff on page 117. It says, we're always in the process of approaching truth and perfection without actually ever reaching truth or perfection. And when I've interviewed for jobs, they always ask me, like, what's one thing that we should know about you? And I'm always like, well, I love learning because I feel like with learning, you grow. If you're always learning, you're always growing. Yes. So that just kind of like made me think of that because I'm always – Like, my opinion will constantly change the more I learn about something. I have been thinking about this so much because, as you know, I currently have big beef with the public school system, and (laughs) I feel like... It's just a piece of shit, but that's beside the point. I feel like the way that we currently do public school, we make people have bad relationships with learning, which makes people fucking shitty humans throughout the rest of their lives. Because if you hate learning, then every time somebody presents new knowledge with you, you're just going to react the way that you reacted when your teacher told you to write an essay that didn't matter about anything, you know? Exactly. So this book has been making me think a lot about public school and about, you know, a lot of our other shitty like systems that we have in the society you know I have problems with all of them (laughs) (laughs) and then one last thing on 117 and then you can take it away um going into the everyone is wrong so instead of us trying to find out the right answers we should chip away at the ways that we're wrong today so we can be a little less wrong tomorrow so I thought that was really cool and I was just like oh man eye-opening Yeah, this, I didn't make any notes in here from 117 until 120 because I was just reading it and he's talking about like how he personally chips away at those things or how other people could do it. One of his examples is a woman who is single and lonely and wants a partner, but she never gets out of the house and does anything about it. That's something that we hear about a lot in today's society or a certain man who works his ass off and believes he deserves a promotion, but he never asks his boss for the promotion. So like you notice the thing in like your life that's lacking but you don't ask for it I feel like he's just telling you nobody's going to give it to you and instead of being afraid that somebody's going to disagree that you deserve it maybe you should just not give a fuck that they're going to disagree and tell them you want it anyway so this this was a good couple of pages and then he goes on to talk about how we're architects of our own beliefs on 120 which basically has been what he's been saying this whole time now he's just really cementing it for us 
Before we get there, there was one quote on 119 that I loved. Certainty is the enemy of growth. Now we can go to 120. That's a good one. Oh, Maybe yeah. we should get a tattoo in Sanskrit or something. Like <laughs> Will Ferrell in the internship, make reasonable choices. There we go. There we go. Uh, he talks about how we're architects of our own beliefs, which is basically what he's been saying this whole time. And basically, Kayla, what I think you've been mad about this whole time, how he's saying <laughs> the way we feel right now might be caused by us maybe so, it is <laughs> once again I didn't take very many notes here maybe I was sitting there being upset because he was calling me out too much but he's talking about how they do this really awful why do all like psychological tests seem like torture they put a bunch of people in a room or the people are not in a room together they put one person in a room and there's like this bell that dings and they say if you get the sequence correct the spell worth ding so they come up with all these crazy sequences like push the buttons in a certain way or one lady is like jumping up and touching ceiling tiles and she thinks she has to do a certain number of jumps and then it dings and all of it's arbitrary it just dings at random and these people come up with all these sequences and they all think they're right so the whole point of this study besides making people do shit for no reason is nothing has a point there's no point you decide what the point is I guess I was just like confused on this whole thing anyway like there was no rhyme or reason for it the study yeah there was no rhyme or reason for it like they go at random what did you want the people to do sit there and watch it go at random (laughs) Like, I don't understand what they, and so I put, they're my buttons, they're pressing my buttons, because I just did not get what this Yeah, was. I don't, I don't, did he, he didn't tell us what the name of the study is, so I don't feel no. like, he, and he didn't tell us what, why they did this study, just like what one of the outcomes of it was, and I would love to know more about this study, because I too am like, why did they do this? Why were psychologists back in the day all fucking shady? <laughs> They're just like, I want to play mind games with people and have them press buttons. Have jump you ever up seen Community at all? No. It's it's a super cute sitcom show, but they do something like this. Like one of the girls is in a psychology class at their community college and her and her professor decide to put a bunch of students in a room with one day old donuts and tell them all like, these donuts are kind of stale, but I'm going to be right back with some fresh donuts. And they were sorting people based on intelligence. Like the smarter people will wait for the fresh donuts, but dumb people will take the stale donuts. And they had those people wait for like 16 hours for fresh donuts and people were crying and like breaking down. Oh my god! That's gosh. what probably happened in this fucking room. Probably. <laughs> Anyways, I just, I, I, I don't understand the point of this study, but I think Mark's point is to tell us we get to decide what the point is. Okay. These people all believe they discovered the perfect sequence of buttons to earn them points, but the methods they came up with were as unique as the individual themselves. I feel like this chapter, he's really trying to be empowering, and it felt that way when I was reading it. Good. I mean, (laughs) there were some, like on page 122, the last paragraph. Second, uh, once we create meaning for ourselves, our brains are designed to hold on to that meaning. We are biased toward the meaning our mind has made, and we don't want to let go of it. We see, even if we see evidence that, evidence that contradicts the meaning we created, we often ignore it and keep believing it anyway. QAnon people, but like, <laughs> also like it means. Oh sense. my gosh! I swear I saw Ron Watkins at King Supers this weekend. Matt saw him too. We were both staring at him like crazy. Anyway, you guys didn't go get his autograph. Heck no. Do you know who Ron Watkins is, the leader of Q? Yes. Yes, I do. I do not want to walk up to him and end up being posted about on that site and have somebody freaking swap my house. No, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) 
that's what I feel like happens when you get involved with those cute people. No, leave me alone. I, I, I don't even want to say anything about it. You just watch the documentary. Just watch the docu-series. <laughs> um, and then on 123, I liked that. Uh, all beliefs are wrong. All beliefs. Yeah. I really liked pages 122 and 123. He starts 122 saying our brains are meaning machines. And that is such a good way to think about it. Because, you know, they're just a bundle of nerves. And then he talks about how... Even when we remember shit, we don't remember it right because our brain colors in the blanks to make it a cohesive story so that we can remember it easier. And like, like, you know, in the news, people remember stories better than they remember facts. Your brain knows that. Mm -hmm. And I wrote here, our brains really just be making shit up, don't they? (laughs) They really do, though. That's funny. And then he, this leads into the dangers of pure certainty. That makes sense. Your brain does whatever it wants. So being purely certain in and upon yourself seems like maybe it's a bad idea. Oh, this is why you like Erin. Wait, did you like Erin's story? I thought she was like stage five clinger. Oh, man, I did like Erin's story just because this shit was wild. I wish it would have been on a TikTok. Gosh, this is so good. Like, (laughs) so Erin, they, I don't know. If, I don't know how they knew each other before. He kind of goes into it. They meet. She says he's cute. They hook up. She they meet at obsessed. a self-help, oh. <laughs> at a self-help convention. <laughs> probably one that he's hosting because he fucking writes self-help books. <laughs> and he was probably one of the fucking speakers. He doesn't say that. It's just a self-help seminar. And then he says, of course I slept with her. <laughs> and then a month later, she invited him to uproot his life and move across the country with her. And he said, this struck me as somewhat of a red flag. So I tried to break things off with her. <laughs> it's like, tell me that this story isn't just straight from the trashiest of white trash. I love this shit. This is what I live for, actually. <laughs> well, I'm just wondering, like, what what would happen? What would have happened if he would have moved? How does he know that he wouldn't have been happy with her? <laughs> right. He does it. It's, it's all about your perspective, Mark. You get to decide what the point is. Mm-hmm. I wrote in here, men are stupid and I don't respect them. Because, like, <laughs> if I ever heard a story that went with that, this is it. <laughs> so, Erin had, like, been in a bad car accident. She medically died and was dead for a few minutes. And then came back to life believing that she could cure death. She, like, cured her rabbit of some, like, disease through like taps and i'm have you ever heard of these like this like tapping it says the way that lazarus was resurrected and yeah i do think that that happened in the bible and it happens in some shows like have you ever heard of this no i just think of manifesting taps where like if you have like anxiety somewhere if you just like tap yourself like three times it goes away or something weird i mean it's got to be pretty similar right so she just tapped the disease out of the rabbit so she thinks that she can cure everything in the world and uh Mark needs to be with her to do it. And she's even willing, because it's been years and years now since they hooked up, to uh, be a thruple with him and his current fiance. (laughs) They're, like, literally having sushi. And she's talking about why they need to be a thruple and how Mark's fiance shouldn't feel threatened by her at all. And this is just, I love this. This is what I live for, y'all. This is is why I read Daily Mail every day. (laughs) How would you feel if you went to dinner with uh, with a stalker of mats and she's like I have to we have to be all together we all have to be together I'll be the thruple I mean it depends if she's a fucking hippie and her job is tap healing rabbits I don't know she's not gonna get me a heated floor but if she's a neurosurgeon maybe we could talk about it what's the hot tub situation (laughs) no I'm just kidding I don't think it would get to a dinner because like 
No offense, Mark, but you've engaged with her at some point. You got to a dinner, so you've said, okay, let's have dinner. Like, yeah. file charges or something. Yeah. Like, uh, I, I, I don't know. I just wouldn't, I, if I was truly, like, felt like we had to sit down and speak with this person to make her stop, I probably just wouldn't even go there, and I would just call the cops, because you can't talk to crazy people. You just you can't. can't. You want to know why? Because they get to decide what the point is. Oh. <laughs> right? Am I right? Oh, I'm yeah. Just, I don't want to say that she's crazy, because she is really certain in herself. You know Jamie from Ted Lasso, and how he says... I'm me. Why would I want to be anything else? And Ted's like, wow, that is a really mentally healthy thing to say. That's yes. how Aaron feels. <laughs> so I don't know. That's true. Just saying. But um, yeah, I don't think I'd be down for a stalker bitch. So let's not even try it. Let's not even go there. Because um, I am crazy. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm not. Just kidding. I'm so nice. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so they're at sushi and she's like talking about how their special relationship was going to be the harbinger of the new age of permanent peace on earth. She sounds crazy. Like, I wish I could have been up there. I wish I could have been at the next table over because I would have been like... I would have been recording. I would have just been like all eyes on the them. Shit out of it. I yeah. know one of two. I'd be like, Orlando, let me tell you what she's saying. Yeah, right. Like, let me sit next to you and you pretend you're talking to me and I'm just going to just be here, okay? Like, just, just be, be chill. <laughs> oh, man. This is so good. But, anyways, they talk about like thousands of emails and all this shit. And this all leads into like, what, what are we even getting from the story except a high from all this drama? I don't even know. Because she felt right. In her way of thinking, even though he was telling her, no, you're wrong. So, yeah. But you know what? I kind of feel she's like maybe right. she's the most most mentally healthy of all of us because she is so certain of herself. Yeah. That's crazy. I want that level of certainty in myself, even if it's batshit crazy. Isn't Mark telling us that, like, it doesn't matter what other people think about the things that we think are important? Exactly. I don't know. I don't know. This is an interesting tidbit. Now that I'm rereading it, I'm kind of having different thoughts still delectably dramatic and I'm so glad that I know it though so perfect this he like goes into evil after this though yeah he does the concept of evil I don't think this bunny tapping lady is evil she's just a little out there yeah she's yeah you could probably get a restraining order against her screws a little loose yeah so this one also talks about like rape and stuff and it talks about certainty and it says men rape and abuse women out of their certainty that they're entitled to women's bodies so again he's talking about entitlement and stuff and he calls that evil and says people are people never believe they are evil rather they believe that everyone else is evil and it just kind of to me boils down to narcissism yeah, I really liked this paragraph about the entitlement, too, because I'm sure that you know that I think entitlement is ruining the world. Like, it's basically criminal. Mm-hmm. Entitled people usually are criminals. And they are, though. He also starts talking about the Stanford projects in this. <gasps> oh, yeah. I heard about that on your You're wrong about, about right? Yeah. Yeah, you remember that. And he just, like, goes over how these like people at the Stanford prison project it's at the Stanford school obviously they take some students and they make some of them guards and some of them normal people and like have them punish them and it escalates but that story is like so much more crazy and if you have not heard about it I feel like you should listen to the you're you're wrong about podcast about the Stanford experiment because the guards really felt entitled and they really psychologically tormented their classmates for days and the professors not only allowed it but basically encouraged it. it. So it was, it's very interesting. And And I feel like it's just kind of swept under the rug now. It is. And then when there was a guard that didn't want to do that, 
they got fired or yeah. taken off the project. Right. Yeah. And he like spoke out and didn't like he get silenced or something in the media. I, yes, I feel like it's I a whole so. thing. Yeah. But this is a perfect example of entitlement. These kids were classmates 10 seconds before. And then the teachers are like, hey, you're guards and you're prisoners now act accordingly. And the people who are guards think that prisoners deserve to be treated as less than what does that tell you about society? Because regardless of if you're a prisoner or not a prisoner, you're a human being. I mean, I wouldn't keep a dog locked in a dark room for 24 hours. I, I don't know. It depends. If they were my dogs yesterday, fuck yes. <laughs> well, at least until Orlando gets home to let them out. <laughs> Honestly, I feel like they're worse than kids. God, fuck yeah. I'm never having, I don't even want another dog again. Yeah. I keep thinking two is the max. Two is the max. I, two might be too much. They yeah. walk all over me. Literally, I'm covered in bruises. <laughs> Mark says here at the end of page 127 that the pursuit of certainty often breeds more and worse insecurity. And I like that because if you're trying to be certain about yourself, you have to like think about every little thing and make sure it's all like good and perfect, right? All the time. That's Mm -hmm. very stressful. That makes you think about things you didn't realize that were imperfect about yourself that don't even freaking matter. On 128, there was a going more into like if you feel unappreciated and under under acknowledged it doesn't help and um sorry it goes down into like this one paragraph it says and in these moments of insecurity of deep despair that we become susceptible to an insidious entitlement believing that we deserve to cheat a little to get our way and other people deserve to be punished and that we deserve to take what we want and sometimes violently. So criminally, criminals. And you just said criminals are entitled. I'm telling you, that was the paragraph I really liked on page 128 too. I wrote, so to be happy, maybe, hopefully that will happen. But I mean, a lot of this, a lot of this makes sense to me. Uncertainty removes our judgment of others. It preempts the unnecessary stereotyping and biases that we otherwise feel when we see someone on TV, in the office, or on the street. It relieves us of our judgment of ourselves. We don't know if we're lovable or not. We don't know how attractive we are. We don't know how successful we could potentially become. The only way to achieve these things is to remain uncertain of them and be open to finding them out through experience. Which I have a problem with that because I love judging people, so... Stop trying to take away all our hobbies, Mark. Yeah. Do you remember the Ted Lasso episode where he beats Rupee in darts? Yes. And he's talking about that be curious quote that he saw and yes. how all of his bullies weren't curious. This part just reminded me of that. And I think about that scene in Ted Lasso all the time. You know what? This book, I don't know if we covered it in the last podcast or if it's in this one but when he talks about going up to talk to random people and they're like oh I can't do that and they're like you should it reminds me of Ted Lasso because Ted Lasso can have conversations with just anybody a lot of this reminds me of Ted Lasso like the only thing that Ted Lasso does that I think is not Mark Manson approved is that he's like kind of positive all the time but yeah I think that's a coping mechanism and maybe in the next season now that he's done some therapy he won't be positive all the time Watching that show and reading this book at the same time is very nice because Mark can be harsh and Ted Lasso is nice. And Ted Lasso is very nice. On 129, I liked um, right after that paragraph, it goes, the man who believes he learn- he knows everything learns nothing. Correct. Because you don't ask any questions. You refuse to accept any knowledge that aren't part of your preconceived notions. 
So you can never grow. But then also, like, that's kind of a double-edged sword because how many times, like, when you've started a new job and maybe you don't do this or maybe it's just me, but, like, even if you're, like, six months in and you ask a question or three months in and you ask a question, people look at you like, you should already know that by now. Or why are you so stupid to ask that question? So I feel like this kind of goes with, like, people need to be more open to Mm -hmm. others asking questions. Right. Well, you know, if those people were more curious, they would be more accepting of curiosity because they wouldn't be wondering like why are you asking this question why don't you know this already they wouldn't I feel like he talks later about how our capitalist society (laughs) makes us think that you should already be somewhere and we're all just trained to think that everybody should know what we know already which in reality if everybody knew what we knew already then we would be obsolete so that wouldn't really work well exactly and we wouldn't have two political parties and we would have universal health care. So, <laughs> so many things would be better, but anyway, <laughs> there'd probably be a lot less people though. right? <laughs> probably, probably. So then we go into Manson's law of avoidance. I love to avoid. Yeah, me too. He says, the more something threatens your identity, the more you will avoid it. And that feels very fucking obvious. <laughs> yes <laughs> Murphy's law it's whatever can go wrong will go wrong and you know what that is anxiety my friend yes yes I think that uh Murphy had anxiety <laughs> I think so too and so, that's why that's why Manson came up with his own law because he didn't like Murphy's law yeah he's like I'm done doing anxiety sorry guy we're moving on and He's talking about how there's a certain comfort that comes with knowing how you fit in the world. Anything that shakes up that comfort, even if it potentially could make your life better, is inherently scary. And I'm like, yeah, I hate change. It is scary. <laughs> we, I can't find out the end result of every single option right now before I choose. Pass then. I'll do nothing. But like he said, not choosing is choosing, right? Exactly. I've and, been thinking about that a lot. Well, going back to like picking out things and trying to like know what's going to happen that is why i look up spoilers to competition reality tv shows like the challenge i read the last page first (laughs) because i need to know if i am having anxiety through it i'm just going to stop it because i'm like why the hell am i putting myself through all this anxiety to watch a stupid ass show that doesn't really have anything to do with me Right. I don't want to read a whole ass book if it doesn't end the way that I want it to end. I'm not exactly. d- dedicating hours of my life that I'll never get back to not having the result I want. But according to Mark, we're thinking about it the wrong way. Well, he can fuck right We're off. wrong then. <laughs> we're always wrong. That's the name of this chapter. You're wrong about everything. <laughs> On page 131, he talks about like, just not doing things because you don't know if it's going to happen. Just kind of like what you already talked about. And so there was one thing of like fear of setting boundaries. He said you avoid telling your friends that you don't want to see them anymore because the ending of the friendship would conflict with your identity of a, being a nice, forgiving person, which I feel like could also go with fear of setting boundaries. Yeah, that's really good. And that's an interesting way to look at it, too, when you're afraid of hurting somebody's feelings. Why? Especially if it's going to be better for you in the end. But how can you be an empath, but also, like, set boundaries for yourself? Because every time I think about it, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to hurt this person's feelings. And sometimes I'd rather hurt my feelings more than hurt that person's feelings. You have to decide which problems you prefer to have. Can I just block them? Like, I'm trying to figure out how to block everyone. I'm trying to figure out how to break up with my esthetician. The one that does my underarms because I just like, 
it's just a mental draining every time I go. And yeah. Like, I don't know how to break it up. Do I just, just like block her? She calls with me, someone else. She calls me <laughs> Carrie Ann. Oh my God. I hate nicknames. <laughs> Carrie Ann, why? Why? I don't know. Is it a nickname or does she think that's your name? She thinks that's my name. I'm so upset. Just make an appointment somewhere else. I feel like, hear me out. This is my honest opinion. If she didn't make an effort to learn your name, you should not be contributing to her pocketbook. You're right. Because I'm Mike so drop. tired. <laughs> I'm tired of listening to her drama and I'm tired of uh, talking pol- listening to her talk politics. Oh, this yes, is this okay. Her. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um. <laughs> I think that you're allowed to just go to a new place. Okay. All right. Thank you. Maybe this new place will be closer to your house or closer to your work. Yeah. I'll just block her. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You decide what problems you want, Kayla. You decide. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. You're right. So they're not. They're not. So block her ass. Go to a new place. Whatever. Do your armpits yourself. What does an institution do to your armpits? Do I, am I not, nobody does anything to mine. Do I need to do something? Uh, she waxes them. And I feel like it's because my armpits grow back so quickly. Like my armpit hairs grow back so quickly. So I just get them waxed, but I'm planning on getting them lasered this summer. So. Right. I want to get mine lasered too. So we'll see who goes first. I want a real good deal <laughs> on it because I want it to be like 15 bucks a pit. Okay. That's how much oh I feel like a pit is worth. That's how much I feel like a pit is worth, too. So if I can't get it for 15 bucks a pit, I'm, I don't want it. I'm no. waiting for that deal. <laughs> Me, too. Me, too. Okay. So if anybody wants to sponsor us and laser our pits for 15 bucks a pit, we'll talk about you. But we need, uh, we need a place in Florida and in Colorado, so you better be a corporate. And our names are Brandy and Kayla. Yeah. Brandy and Kayla. <laughs> anyways so we're giving up these values that don't suit us anymore because they don't make any fucking sense once we look at the core of them and this leads into killing yourself right (laughs) (laughs) he talks about buddhism and how you just like to become a buddhist you have to be suicidal about your invaluable self basically about your ego yes that's really your ego Mm mm-hmm Yes, that's good. You are killing your ego. The you who thinks you're entitled to a certain outcome of every certain thing that you do. And it basically says that you don't have to do that. Just yeah. And he goes on to like people like emailing him like, how do I do this? How do I do that? How do I do this? And he's like, you just do it. Yeah. He's saying that when you're asking yourself, how do I ask someone to marry me or something like that? You have to get rid of all the arbitrary, like, things that don't really matter in that question that are giving you anxiety. Like, will people be watching? Will she say no? Because I guess the real answer, like, the real question, the real value there is, do you want to marry her, you know? But also, if she's already said no and you're stalking her, stop. It's not cool. (laughs) (laughs) You need to reevaluate your values. And he's talking about, like, people that have, problems again and he's like I have both some good news and some bad news for you there is little that is unique or special about your problems that's why letting go is so liberating I wrote in my notes at this point that this book makes me feel very (laughs) (laughs) self-centered felt like I was meditating yeah right he basically says you're a narcissist when you feel like your problems are unique and special um 
because you feel as though your problems deserve to be treated differently, that your problems have some unique math to them that doesn't obey the laws of everybody else's universe. So his recommendation is don't be special. Don't be unique. He kind of rewinds it back to the first chapter because he talks about that then. And I feel like this book is like how not to be a narcissist. But then I also feel like Mark is kind of a narcissist in a way because this was his book. I think he didn't he kind of say that he is. I think so. Yeah, I think that I kind of am a little bit. Maybe we all are. You know what? Honestly, I think infants come out being narcissists. So maybe the whole fucking point of life is to just be a little bit less of a narcissist than you were yesterday. Okay, I need to hear this theory. Girl, no. You you cannot tell me that you do not believe that all babies are little sociopaths. They only care about themselves. They'll wake you up in the middle of fucking night screaming because they're wet on their bottoms. Are you kidding me? They, they don't even, like, no. They have to be in order to survive, though. Like, they have to only focus on numero uno. Like, the only reason they like you is because staring into your eyes brings them comfort and reminds them of being in the womb. <laughs> The only reason they love you is because it makes them feel good, okay? And then once they turn three and they start bitching about that sippy cup and telling you that their nursery teacher is their favorite person in the world, you're gonna be like, yeah, Brandy was right. Little fucking narcissist doesn't care about anything. <laughs> you know what? I Take that back. Passion is not. Last night, I went, he hates going to bed. And last night, I went to bed at 7 o'clock. I said, I'm going 9 He goes, okay, I'm going 9 too. And grabs my hand and takes me to bed. Oh, so. that's so sweet. Did he stay? Did he go to sleep? Yeah, he did. That's really sweet. So maybe you started chipping away at his narcissism block for, like faster than some people do. But they all come out just thinking about number one. That could be it. Because, I mean, there are times in the bathtub where, like, I shed and my hair is in the bathtub and he, like, will pick it up and be like, Mom, get your hair. That's a little narcissistic. You can (laughs) deal with them in the bathtub. But also, like, have you ever talked to a child? Like, you'll be having a whole last conversation and they'll interrupt you 97 times because whatever they're saying is more important than whatever all of you are saying. You could be having a conversation about, like, going to war. And they're like, no, 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 Minecraft now. That's exactly what it is. (laughs) So many times, like, I'm having a combo. I'm having a combo. And he's like, yeah, you are with me. Thanks for listening. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome. I just started it. (laughs) Uh, 135, we talk about how to be a little less certain of yourself. So stop being a narcissist. Um, I wrote difference between questions, questioning yourself and self-doubt. Because it says, what if I'm wrong? And he talks about his friend who just recently got engaged. And so that's why I was like, well, how do you know the difference between like if you're questioning like is this the right thing? And then self-doubt, like, is this the right thing? Are you good enough? Are you not good enough? Like, what's the difference? Maybe there is no difference. But maybe entitled people don't have self-doubt. Oh, maybe. So, so maybe you're right. Maybe he is telling us to have a little self-doubt, to humble ourselves. Okay. Question what's going on. But not so much that we're so crippled that we can't go outside every day. Moderation. Like moderate, yeah. Maybe, maybe that's what he's saying. Because honestly, once we get to chapter nine, you will see that I feel like some of these are wishy-washy. I don't know. We could go one way or the other. I'm so excited to get there. On page 136, one of the questions was, um, "Oh, by consistently questioning how wrong we might be about ourselves, am I jealous? And what if I am? Like, just like asking yourself these questions, what can it do? 
am I jealous? And if I am, then why am mm-hmm. I angry? Is she right? And am I just projecting my ego? So, or am I protecting my ego? So it's just, and once again, this comes back to what he was talking about. What we decide is valuable. We need to decide like if we were wrong, like, you know, what would that mean? What his example, do we need to talk about the example so we could round it out? His example in the first question is his friend's brother is mad about her wedding. Oh, yeah. And um, he's saying the friend's brother needs to ask himself, am I jealous? Am I angry? Like, why am I mad about this wedding? And then once he finds out why he's mad, then he needs to find out what would it mean if he was wrong about being angry or jealous about the sister's wedding? And he says, usually the answer to that question is I'm being selfish, insecure, narcissistic. So I feel like these, these, both of these questions are him just telling us that when we feel like we're judging somebody else's actions, maybe we're just being narcissists and we shouldn't care so much what everyone else is doing. That's what I'm thinking. Also, I like um, in question two, Aristotle wrote, it is the mark of an educated mind to be able to entertain a thought without accepting it. And I just keep thinking about the conspiracy theorists. <laughs> they be entertaining. They be, they're in there, actually. No, it's not entertaining. <laughs> they're fully in there. Yeah, they have immersed themselves into that way of life. That's crazy, right? There's, I don't know, were there so many conspiracy theorists like way back in the day before the internet? Or is it just so much easier to find shit that doesn't make sense I think from it's people just, who make it sound good? I think it's just so much easier to find stuff on the internet now. But I mean, there were still conspiracy theories, theorists before this because, I mean, people thought George W. Bush did 9-11. <laughs> George W. Bush literally wears Velcro shoes. He has orchestrated no terrorist <laughs> attacks. Leave no my grandpa alone. A little bit higher uh, IQ. <laughs> Oh, man. You know what? I would do anything to get George W. back after the last (laughs) We've seen what a terrorist attack orchestrated by people who live in Texas looks like, and it was the insurrection on last year. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing as grandiose as the two towers. I mean, but also, I wouldn't want an insurrection at my house, so please don't come here. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. This chapter is kind of missing for me, I guess. Um, question three is, would being wrong create a better or worse problem than my current problem for both myself and others? So he's talking about his friend's brother, and he said, what are his options? Continue causing drama, which is A, continue causing drama and friction within the family. B, mistrust his own ability to determine what's right for his what's right or wrong for his sister's life and remain humble trust her ability to make her decisions even if it doesn't live with the results of his love and respect for her I was also wondering like what about intuition you know sometimes when you get like a gut feeling like when you meet a bad person and you get a gut feeling you're like oh that's a bad person what if he's what if he has this feeling because it's a gut feeling yeah I don't know, because sometimes those people are just bad people. It's hard to tell. How do you distinguish from one or the other? I really liked question three. I feel like you could apply this logic to a lot of like things. But what about that random situation where it really is a bad fit or he's an abuser or something? What if her brother knows something that she doesn't? But also, how do you get people out of abusive relationships? You just have, I, I don't know. I think that's the question of a lifetime. I think when you figure that one out. um... Yeah, I think that you can't. I think that the best thing that you can do when you know somebody is going to be in an abusive relationship is just... Cut him out. I'm just kidding. Kill him. Um, If you can, 
do that and get away with it like Kaya, but most of us are just going to have to be there to support that person whenever they ask for the support so that when they decide to leave, they feel like you're a person that they can turn to without being judged. Oh my God. Yeah. You're so right. Um, so I still, so even in this guy's situation, if his bad feeling is that his sister shouldn't marry this dude because he's an abuser, he still needs to tamp that shit down and not cause drama with the family because in the end, when she decides to leave that abuser, she's going to feel like the brother is not someone that she can trust, not be like, well, I told you so. Why are you coming to ask me for help now when she's already been kicked while she was down and been convinced that she's stupid, you know? So even in that situation, you know, I'm going to talk about Ted Lasso again because they want to talk about Beard's toxic relationship. Remember? And oh, Higgy yeah. says something, and Ted and Nate and Roy are all like, you can't say anything. He's just going to get mad. He can't say anything. And that's the truth. You can't. Nope. You can't. Even if they're, like, complaining about it to you, you just have to, like, agree with what they're saying in the moment. And then when they're happy about it again, agree then just so you're an ally. Yeah. And that sounds like you're enabling them, but. That's what you have to do. To keep it's the better peace. than getting like carved out and not being an ally when they need it, I think. Or um, you could wedding crash, burn that shit to the ground. Ooh, Option C, fun. yeah. You could <laughs> new girl it. Put a put a badger in the ceiling. Oh yeah, you could new girl it. Uh, Cotton Eye Joe, put that shit on repeat. <laughs> Get some Nick Miller in there. That'll that'll lower the steam for sure. Um, he finishes this chapter like one way that I really. I really, so when I was a teenager, I was, like, going through a lot of shit, like teenagers do, and I thought, like, everyone was wrong, and I was right, and all this stuff, and Isn't one that thing, so embarrassing to think about now? It is, <laughs> and one thing that, like, really struck me hard was I was fighting with literally everybody, and so I, like, took a step back, and I was like, I'm the common denominator of all of these arguments. It's me, so what am I doing wrong that's pissing everybody else off? What can I do to change how I am perceiving myself or how I'm giving myself to the world to make everyone not be pissed off. And that's what he kind of says. He says, if it's down to me being screwed up or everybody else being screwed up, it is far, far, far more likely that I'm the one who screwed up. Yeah. And this kind of circles back to the chapter when he was talking about what good values are and what bad values are. And he says, good values are values that we can control immediately. And like, there's something that we control can control like our mindset or whatever. And a, just continuing to cause drama in the hopes that somebody will listen to you is not controllable. It's not something that you can control. What you can control is shutting the fuck up about it. The better choice is the thing that doesn't leave us hoping that somebody will do what we want, even though it seems for damn sure like they won't. Yep. And I love this. If it feels like it's you versus the world, chances are it's really just you versus yourself. I wrote mic drop right after that. And that's how we <laughs> ended chapter six. That was a big chapter. That was the longest chapter, I think. Yeah, I think it was like 35 pages or something ridiculous. I wrote at the end of this one that I suspected that this chapter resonated with both of us a lot because we had been talking about whether all of our current beliefs were ours or beliefs that like society had systematically taught to us, you know, Mm -hmm. systemically, systematically. How do you say it? I don't know. I'm not good at English or any other languages, but me either. I feel like he's really challenging you to think about what you value and why you value it. Like, is it because you actually think this is important or is it because when you were born, America told you that this was important? I like that. 
I That's did what too. I'm trying to do every day. And it kind of got so on Sunday or this past weekend, whatever. Um, I went to the pride parade and I had my son in it. And then I felt like I felt kind of bad. Cause I was like, one thing I don't want to do is push my beliefs and my views on my kid. Like I really want him to think for himself and just gather opinions by himself. And so I was just like worried that maybe I was pushing my, my views onto him. And then I sat there after reading that and I was like, I wasn't pushing my views. I was instilling my values to him. And then I was worried about what people would say about that. Like people were like, Oh, Kayla's taking her kid to where the gays hang out. And so then like that even gave me more anxiety, but then I was like, it doesn't matter because I'm the one that's raising him. I'm the one that is going to live with him for the next 18 years. So. Right. Also on the opposite edge of that, the alternative was for you to not take him and in my opinion leave him out of something that he would enjoy and leave him out of being involved in your life and I feel like that's not a good set of problems either so I think that your choice was better for lots of reasons me too me too and kids are going to probably like your values at least until they go out to school or into like more public places because you are their role model the one that they have and they're so fucking strong-willed like they'll make up their mind if they disagree with you quick fast and in a hurry once exposed to other things so why not gently expose them to the things that you think are right so that they have a big heaping pile of things to choose from once they get to school and it's all republicans all the time (laughs) (laughs) you know yeah, on that note, failure is the way forward. Yes, <laughs> but I don't mean through public school. <laughs> when he was in, he graduated school in 2007, and he was looking for a real job, but he just wasn't having any luck, and he was living on friends' couches, and then he got a real job, and he realized he didn't like it, and he wanted to do internet stuff and he realized if he did internet stuff he would be at the same exact place that he's at now so why not try failure itself is a relative concept which I've been talking to you about starting business and so this chapter kind of like got with me because it's like why not try because regardless of what I do I'm gonna be back where I am yeah now honestly Starting a business the first year might even lower your tax bill if you don't make any money, but you put a lot of money into it. But we can Mm. talk about that on text later. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But you know what? I agree with this for the same reasons, because I like to psych myself out every time like something comes up, you know, I'm starting a YouTube channel. It's fucking hard. (laughs) Why do they make it look so easy? It's not. And I didn't realize I was going to have to be like a writer and a producer and a like director and the filmer and like the cue card person and the actor and like all this shit. And I get really like in the week where I'm actually doing all the work for that. I just get real upset and anxious and depressed about it. But he's right. If I don't do it, then it just won't be done. And then what? Worst case scenario, I do it and it's shit. But at least I did it. And you can only get better from here. It does get better every time I put something out, so I should really stop procrastinating so hard. But failure itself is a relative concept. So if my, he's telling you, just make your goal to like, make your goals as small as possible, right? So that there's no failure, basically. Yeah. If my goal is just to work on my YouTube video a little bit today, and I work on it for 20 minutes, then mission accomplished, maybe. Cut them down into bite-sized pieces. There you go. Like we do with the potty. Yes. 
he goes into the failure success paradox when he's talking about Pablo Picasso sitting in this uh, cafe. I love this story, too. I love the sassy stories that he puts in here. I love this story. Yeah, so he's doodling on a napkin in a cafe, and he goes to toss it in the trash, and apparently it's majestic, so this, like, other cafe goer is like, hey, can I buy that napkin from you instead of you throwing it in the trash? And he's like, yeah, $20,000, because he's fucking Picasso. And the lady is like, what? And it took you two minutes to draw that. And he says, no, no, no. It took me 40, it took me 60 years to draw this. And he's saying, like, he values all the time that he put into something. It took him 60 years to learn how to doodle some shit on a napkin, you know? That's, that's crazy. I love that story. It goes into the next paragraph of improvement at anything is based on thousands of tiny failures and the magnitude of your success is based on how many times you failed at something. So it's literally, if you get knocked down 10 times or get knocked down nine times, get up 10. Like, yeah, you have to fail or you won't succeed. Oh, how man. inspiring. It's so, it's so inspiring. I'm surprised you didn't write anything about on this on page 144 about the education system. Oh, man, it's just, you know, I don't even need to write anything. It's an overarching thing that's going on in my life right now. If I open up a homeschool in the next couple of years, you know why. Yeah, I know why. <laughs> well, I'll be there. Sebastian will be the first fucking student. I believe and it. I believe you it. know what I hope you do every time you open up a book? Gay. Okay. Gay. <laughs> I probably will. Homosexual. Oh, man. Probably. It's, I feel like it's going to be some good stuff. They're going to be really open-minded children coming out of my school. And they're going to be really proficient in cursing because honestly, why the fuck not? If you don't do network, then why the fuck not? Exactly. Exactly. Um, Well, he's already pretty good at cussing. I have a note on 145 that says, man, using the school, man, using the school system really spoke to me because I guess he actually rolls into an example of the school system right here. He says, avoiding failure is something we learn at some later point in life. I'm sure a lot of it comes from our education system, which judges us rigorously based on performance and punishes those who don't do well. And that's right. You know, those freaking standardized tests that you do, you don't practice for that shit. You get one try and you need to crush it. Like, that's crazy. And then you don't crush it and then you just lose funding. Don't try again. Do not pass go. Even in college, I had professors that would let us take tests as many times as we wanted to to get 100 because that meant we were going back and finding out the correct answer and even if you're fucking cheating you're going back and finding out the correct answer you got to read the question and read the correct answer like you're creating at least one path in your brain to remember things he's so right here yes they're really teaching us to stop trying if you fail once and Mark is trying to tell us, like, the point to life is failing. Overbearing or critical parents who don't let their kids screw up on their own often and instead punish them for trying anything new or or not preordained. When I was in retail and we would, like, bring on new girls in college, I'd be like, oh, what are you going to college for? And they're like, oh, well, my parents told me that I need to go to college for this. And I'd always be like, what? You're not – what do you want to go for? And they're like, well, I wanted to go for this, but I'm just listening to what my parents say. And, like, these kids aren't ready to fail themselves. Yeah. It's kind of like in the first one and, like, one of the first chapters where that guy is, like, a loser and – the father of psychology and his dad makes him go be a doctor or go to right. doctor at school and he's like I don't want to do this I don't want a doctor who doesn't want to be a doctor and I don't know if this was the same for you when you went to school but my classes like the general study classes I 
I got the grades I needed to pass. But my yep. accounting classes, my business classes, I was getting 98 to 99. It's like, how do you focus on something you don't give a fuck about? Because personally, I just don't. I don't. Yeah. And I, like, how, how could you get an entire degree in something you don't care about? And then like, work your whole life in a field you don't care about. Get ready for some major fucking depression and a midlife crisis like a bitch. That's yeah. going to be rough. Yeah, and we actually learn what a midlife crisis is in this book. Yeah, uh. Mark, Mark would agree with me. Another, <laughs> another quote that I liked on page 145 is, if we're unwilling to fail, then we're unwilling to succeed. That was all that I have from that one. Yeah, I actually liked the next paragraph after, if we're unwilling to fail, then we're unwilling to succeed, where he says, a lot of fear of failure comes from having chosen shitty values. For instance, if I measure myself by the standard, make everyone I meet like me, I'll be anxious because failure is 100% defined by the actions of others, not by my own actions. I'm not in control. Thus, my self-worth is not at the is at the mercies of judgments by others. And <laughs> I just had to ask, do you think that this is why Christians are so angry? Because they're so anxious that they can't convert <laughs> us all in the streets. <laughs> but, and they're so worried God's going to love them. Yes. Yeah. They're, I feel like they're worried about my soul when they're yelling at me. <laughs> me too. Why is my soul your problem, bitch? <laughs> it's not. 146. <laughs> if your metric for the value success by wordly standard is buy a house and a nice car and you spend 20 years working your ass off to achieve it once it's achieved the metric has nothing left to give you then say hello to your midlife crisis because the problem that drove you your entire adult life was just taken away from you idiots yep and he goes on to say that these goals are conventionally defined like graduate from college buy a house lose 15 pounds the amount of happiness that you can get from that is limited like, once you lose the 15 pounds, then what? What if the goal was just to feel as healthy as you possibly could every single day? That's a goal that never ends, no matter how much you weigh. Exactly. And um, he said it'll be helpful when – it may be helpful when pursuing quick short-term benefits, but as guides for the overall traje- trajectory of your life, they suck. Mm-hmm. And like he said before, we don't want to sh- chase short-term highs. We want to – chase feeling good from solving long-term problems and then he says on page 147 pain is part of the process he's talking in this part this book is just so topical right now given the war you know he's talking about how um holocaust survivors coped with traumatic experiences in the war and how the survivors were just so much more appreciative and feeling happy about life after because, like, before they were, like, entitled and they thought they deserved all of this shit. And then it got taken away in pretty magnificently shitty ways. And most of them almost died. A lot of them lost everybody. And then they came out of it with almost nothing and appreciated every single thing that they had. Which sucks. But my takeaway is if you have a near-death experience, it makes you a lot more appreciative. Which builds on something I think I've said a few times. That you need to have bad shit happen to you to be a good person. Or at least you need to see bad shit or hear about bad shit. It moves on. He's still talking about how like pain often makes us stronger, more resilient, more grounded. Like cancer survivors feel stronger and more grateful after they win their battle for survival. And like, yeah, of course, like after you get out of a car accident, you feel like so happy to be alive, right? Like, of course, almost dying makes you feel appreciative of life. But that is not something that's sustainable. You can't almost die every day. No. And he says, um, some of our proudest achievements come in the face of the greatest adversity, but you can't have that every single day. 
you would die young because of anxiety. Yeah. So I don't know how he expects us to uh, appreciate life near death experiences every single day because I can't think about near death experiences every day. I do like this. Uh, You could call it hitting bottom or having an existential crisis. I prefer to call it weathering the shit storm. Choose what suits you. Yeah. Another thing about choosing your life. He's right. And, but he says we need some sort of existential crisis to take an objective look at how we've been deriving the meaning of our life and then consider changing courses. And I said, Oh, perfect. Then I'm doing everything right. (laughs) I really like the next page though. He gets into his VCR questions, which is, I love this. Yeah. He's talking about how, when he got a new VCR, obviously his parents didn't care to learn it, but he did. He plugged everything in. He pushed all the buttons. He knows how to operate VCRs. And now every time he plugs something in, he can just program it. And that's just the way millennials work now. Millennial men. That doesn't work for me. I think it's just the men who did that. (laughs) But anyway, um, so now every time his parents get a VCR or any kind of electronic thing, they're like, hey, Mark, plug this in for us. And then hail him as some sort of of tech god, as you guys know, boomers do. And they're always like, how did you do this? How are you so smart? And he just says all questions that are rooted in your inability to change your own behavior are basically VCR questions. Like when you're too scared to ask out that pretty girl, saying how do you get the motivation to go ask someone out you're actually just scared to change your own behavior and stop being a pussy basically just shut up and do it i he has a little paragraph in here talking about his parents generation and their technophobia and i just can't help but like say this is why we shouldn't have old ass politicians (laughs) joe (laughs) biden i bet you could not plug in a vcr (laughs) he probably couldn't But I mean, he probably has people for that anyway, so. That's no excuse. I mean, you're (laughs) right. But I mean, rich people are also ruining the world, so. Yeah, yeah, you're right. What do you think about VCR questions? Does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. And I think that that's probably right. Like, he makes it seem like it's just like the easiest thing in the world. But it's not. Nope. Every single, he makes it sound so easy, but I feel like he told us about self-reflection or self-awareness. And then he's just like assuming that you're going to be self-aware through the rest of this. And that's hard. It is not easy peasy lemon squeezy at all. How do you just walk up and talk to a person? You just do it. You just do it. Yeah. And then he says, like you were saying, the the problem was that his emotions defined his reality. It felt like people didn't want to talk to him. So he came to believe that people didn't want to talk to him. But he says the world is a simple place where two people can literally just walk up to each other at any time and speak. Honestly, I didn't love this, though, because I do not want people to walk up to me at any time and speak. I would prefer if you do not approach me. Don't, actually. That makes me feel weird. But theoretically, the world is a place where you can just walk up to somebody and say, hi, how's it going? Are you enjoying the weather today? What's your dog's name? That's true. That's true. And he goes on to say... um, more about the VCR questions. I won't lie. This is going to feel impossibly hard at first, but you can start simple. You're going to feel as though you don't know what to do, but we've discussed this. You don't know anything. Even when you think you do, you really don't know what the fuck you're doing. So really what is there to lose? Mm -hmm. He says a couple paragraphs above that, that many people, when they feel some sort of pain, anger, sadness, drop everything and attend to numbing out whatever they're feeling. Their goal is to get back to feeling good. Again, as quickly as possible, even if that means substances are diluting themselves or returning to their shitty values. But he says you need to learn to sustain the pain you've chosen. When you choose a new value, you are choosing to introduce a new form of pain into your life. 
So relish it, savor it, and welcome it with open arms. And I love that sustain the pain thing. It sounds like something a really intense personal trainer would say. Yeah. Oh, I he's can't really, do another squat. Yeah. He's personal training our minds. We're, we're doing a squat hold, and then we're going to do some pulses after this. So buckle up, baby. Damn. Damn. Uh, so the next one is the do something principle. This might possibly be my favorite part of the book, the do something principle. I think so too, because is this the, so I'm just going to skip all the way down to 153 at the bottom. There might be more in the top, but thing that he got from his math teacher, Mm -hmm. if you're stuck on a problem, don't sit there and think about it. Just start working on it. Even if you don't know what you're doing, the simple act of working on it will eventually cause the right ideas to show up in your head. Yes. And I love this. When you have a big project at school or a big project at work, my go-to thing is to procrastinate because I just don't know where to start. And then once you actually start finally the night that it's due, you're like pounding out nine hours of work in five hours. And then it's due in five seconds and you realize you could go another four hours. And if you would have just done this the night before, you could have had a whole 24 hours. That happens to me every time I do anything. Oh, yeah. I love this, though. The mantra, do something. I feel like it should not be do something one sentence. I feel like it should be do period something period. Yes. yes. Because like even if I'm procrastinating something that I'm stressed about, like doing something else usually gets me like motivated for the day. And you know what? I read somewhere that this is why they like train you to make your bed in the army. It's like oh. getting the first task done for the day makes you look around and say, okay, what next? What's my next task for the day? And if you start like thinking about everything you do throughout the day for as tasks that you accomplished, you kind of feel like you did a lot of shit. It's very motivational. I like it. And he even has an endless loop that we can follow. Yes. Inspiration, motivation, action, inspiration, motivation, action. And then back to inspiration. Yeah. Action spurs inspiration that spurs motivation. And he says most people wait for inspiration to like get the motivation to produce this desirable action, but you'll be waiting forever. Personally, I'll wait until the day that it's due or skip it entirely. So we need to remember that action is where we get motivation, make the bed. And then you'll be good for the rest of the day. I hope so. I really like to call this period where I'm waiting to the last second, my procrastination phase, and it feels vital to me currently, but I'm going to try to stop. Okay. Let me know how that goes. We'll see. I actually, before we move on to the next chapter, my last takeaway from this was, um, you know how, do you remember in school, or maybe your school didn't do this, but I feel like my schools always made us, like, we had to sit there and, like, come up with a five-year goal and then a 10-year goal and a 50-year goal, and we always just had to have, like, every year we were coming up with goals that we were writing down that we were supposed to be working towards, and I feel like that goal-oriented, like, mindset that they forced us to have, like feels a little bit like a detriment because now we're all 30 and we don't own houses and we feel like we're not doing anything right. Yeah. And it's uh, at no fault of our own. Maybe focusing on all these big lofty goals isn't it. Maybe it's focusing on the task that's in front of you right now and staying in the moment. That's what I think. But then also at the same time, I feel like it's important to have like a five or 10 year plan. Because how will you buy a house? Exactly. But I also feel like it can be fluid. It should be fluid. It needs to be fluid. It like needs this to be is... a five to 10 year plan, not a five year and then a 10 year plan. Yeah. And you need to be allowing for change within that five years. Like five years ago, I wanted to buy a house in Colorado and now I'm, buy- now I'm buying a house in Florida. Like I'm buying a house. It's just not where I wanted, but. 
Yeah. And I want to buy a house across the street from me, but now they're building a high school there and fuck that. (laughs) I'd rather live in a swamp. (laughs) Choose your problems, man. My problems. I do not want high school kids driving near me when I'm walking my dogs. Yeah. No, no. Or at all, if possible. (laughs) So do something, start simple, make it a goal to listen to someone else's problem and give some of your time to help that person. Just do it once or promise yourself that you will assume that you are the root of your problems. Next time you get upset, just try the idea and see how it feels. So I agree with like you being the focus of your problems, but I feel like going into someone else's problems and it is kind of contradictory because I think he talks about it later about solving other people's problems, nothing for you. So I don't know. Because also, if you're giving the people the, the solution to their problem, most of the time they're not going to use it. So it's just going to piss you off even more. Right. Right. So I guess when we're talking to our friends and giving them advice, knowing it's going to go in one ear and out the other, we have to remember that what we find valuable out of this situation is our effort here and not what we can control or what we can't control, which is what they do with our effort. Okay. And maybe like, instead of getting mad at them for not listening to us, maybe we should appreciate them because they would hear us out and give us advice that we could ignore in that situation too. Okay. Maybe. I'm talking out of my ass. Anything that I say that sounds insightful at all, I immediately forget and I do not apply to my real life. So (laughs) fuck everything that I say, by the way, I'm just trying to get where he's going. (laughs) well you're getting there now we go to chapter eight the importance of saying no this is another one that i really like society makes us yes men this is the chapter that he's talking about how society fucked us all can't stop thinking about jim carrey's movie yes man where he's agreeing to all this crazy shit and it makes his life so much better and i'm like how the fuck could never having any control over what's happening to you all day every day like make your life better You know, Jim Carrey is a film genius because he was also in Liar, Liar, which made him a better person Mm. in the movie because he couldn't lie. Yeah, Liar, Liar is such a good movie. I love that. When he's, I was kicking my own ass. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to watch that when we're done here. (laughs) I think I might put it on for background noise, too. Honestly, I'm really intrigued by Jim Carrey and his whole freaking journey that he's had since he lost his fiance, I believe. Grief. Man, I'll change you as a person. Yeah, chapter nine. Can't wait to get into it. Yeah. So the importance of saying no. Mark is an entitled shithead. Can we just say this chapter is about him getting bored of traveling after his 55th country? He doesn't realize like how lucky he is. Well, I guess he does because he says that he's lucky, but. Yeah. So he, um, he's talking about how he went through uh, this phase where he just like sold everything and traveled around to 55 different countries because he um, was entitled. He had spent a few years overcompensating for the inadequacy and social anxiety of his teenager years. And as a result, he felt like he could meet anyone he wanted, be friends with anyone he wanted, love anyone he wanted, have sex with anyone he wanted. So why would he ever commit to a single person or even a single social group or a single city or a country or a culture? If he could experience everything equally, then he should experience everything equally. So he went on this trip around the world because he felt like he was entitled to experiencing everything. He says um, one of the biggest lessons that he took was absolute freedom by itself means nothing. Because while he was gone, um, he saw that his friends back home were getting married, having kids, settling down. And 
he was missing out on those things. And he talked about one place that he really loved, which is really strange to me is St. Petersburg, Russia. And he <laughs> loved it because these people were blind and just told you how they feel that he went on a date with a girl. And like first two minutes in, she told him he was boring. And she's told him he was stupid. <laughs> oh, stupid. I love that. He says he traveled to St. Petersburg, Russia. The weather sucked snow in May. Are you fucking kidding me? And I said, <laughs> you're obviously not from Colorado, Mark. Yep. <laughs> but, um, yeah, he's right. He says, I mean, you're right. He says that Russia really opened him up to the way that Americans are stifled in the way that we communicate to each other. We're told that to give somebody a bad feeling from our words is bad. And in order to not give bad, people bad feelings from what we say, we must always be nice, even if we disagree. And in Russia, they're like, fuck that shit. If you said something stupid, that doesn't make any fucking sense. QAnon supporters, we're going to say it's <laughs> stupid. It doesn't make any fucking sense. I did make a note here that said, as long as you agree with the Kremlin, though, right? To stay out of prison. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Don't tell Putin he's stupid. Don't then you'll go he's... missing. He's basically talking about how travel is a fantastic self-development tool because you get exposed to cultures that are different than yours. And a lot of them are much different than here because we're really, really fucking buttoned up and everything is about money and shit. So we don't talk about sex. We don't talk about what we're really thinking. We're not honest with each other. And you can never really trust another person because something that is an asset in the United States is being able to lie to someone's face and be a completely different person when you leave. Like being able to switch from business mode out of business mode is an asset in the United States. Being mm -hmm. a fake person is an asset in the United States for capitalism. Capitalism. You summed up the um, paragraph I was going to read because I really like this one where it says, um, the exposure to different cultural values and metrics then forces you to re-examine what seems obvious in your life and to consider what that perhaps it's not necessarily the best way to live. In this case, Russia had me re-examining the bullshitty, fake, nice communication that is so common in Anglo culture and asking myself if this wasn't somehow making us more insecure around each other and worse at intimacy. Yep. Thousand percent it is. And I mean, Mark's not the first person to point this out. No. And you know, there's a girl on TikTok who does like this trend where she's just like talking with her work bestie saying all the shit she wants to say in an email. And then they're like, giving it back to her in a way that's like work appropriate. Like, what a waste of company time, right? What if we exactly. could just talk? Exactly a waste. Stop emailing me 30 minutes before five o'clock. I'm about to clock out. <laughs> one, of, one of the responses was, um, what do I say when I want somebody to email me less? And the bestie said, we should reduce frequency of communication to ensure that any important updates are not lost. So going forward, let's be sure to only email on this thread if there is an actual update. Thank you. <laughs> okay, bitch. <laughs> so rejection makes us better that's the next section of chapter eight there was a something that i barred it says there's a certain level of joy and meaning that you reach in life only when you've spent decades investing in a single relationship a single craft and a single career so he it kind of goes back to like the more you work on it and the more you fail at it the better you're going to be yeah i really like this and this i feel like falls back on his thing where he's telling you to decide what you don't like like decide one thing and reject all the others. But first you got to weed out all the things you don't like. Yes. It's interesting that this womanizer decided to choose marriage. Why is it that most men choose that? Women are amazing. That's my only assumption in this point. 
It is. Oh, I liked uh, 165. If I'm choosing to judge myself based on my ability to have open and accepting friendships, that means I'm rejecting trashing my friends behind their backs. And I get 100%. But what about sometimes when you have to vent? What happens when like that pissed you off and you need to go to your boyfriend and you need to be like, listen, let me tell you what this fucking bitch did. Anything (laughs) that you say to your boyfriend doesn't count. That's basically like talking to yourself. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Good to know. Good to know. <laughs> but no, I, really I don't like talk shit about my friends. <laughs> Unless you're really fucking stupid. <laughs> Unless you're really fucking stupid. And sometimes I need to go, listen to this. <laughs> um, also, I just like to tell Matt everything that's going on all the time. So if you text me and it's interesting, I'm telling. Yeah, same. That too. That he likes too. to know the drama. His friends are way less dramatic. God, so, what is it? I, yeah, that sounds boring, but okay. He's saying that basically we're always going to be rejecting something. And I really like that. Like, I'm a very negative person and like rejecting something sounds better than accepting something than to me. So like deciding that I'm going to be a YouTube star is I'm rejecting working a traditional job. And that sounds cool to me because being a YouTube star sounds like a thing that I can't do, but I can say fuck no to corporate America. You know, that sounds like an attainable goal to me and I could fail in a lot of spectacular ways, you know, still, I have a lot of things that I could fail out in this little goal. So I don't know that feels good. I like this. Yeah. Back to what we're talking about here. Um, yeah, I love this. I feel like this ties into the don't try thing too. Like this whole book ties into the don't try thing, but stop trying everything. Find the thing that you like and stick to it. I like tacos. I don't want to try any other food. Don't ask me to try a new restaurant when I know where the best tacos are. Right. (laughs) Sorry, you said something deep, but I like... (laughs) Tacos are deep. (laughs) Over and talk to you. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I don't have anything else to say about rejection. Um, It makes your life better. You need to do it sometimes. You can't be a yes man. You can't. You you can't. Right before boundaries, it says rejection actually makes our relationships better and our emotional lives healthier. Yep. And then we talk, we jump into boundaries and he's talking about Romeo and Juliet and it's fucking fantastic. He starts the story up saying, once upon a time, there were two youngsters, a boy and a girl. Their families hated each other, but the boy snuck into a party hosted by the girl's family because he was kind of a dick. The girl sees the boy (laughs) and angels sing so sweetly to her lady parts that she instantly falls in love with him just like that. (laughs) So they get married the next fucking day. Yeah. Um, and then someone dies. The girl ends up putting herself into a coma. The- Which I didn't know about that. Like this, I learned today that, or when I read this, that she didn't kill herself at first. She just put oh. herself into a coma. Yeah. Well, she ends up killing herself Yeah, because they had shitty communication. She wasn't like, husband, I'm going to take a nap for two days because I'm pretty off my rocker and you don't know this, but I'm crazy. And I do this sometimes because we've only been married for a day. And then he thinks she's dead. He kills himself. Then she finds out that he's really dead and kills herself too. And um, he like rolls into Romeo and Juliet is synonymous with romance. And it's like the love story that everybody talks about. But I just want to say, I feel like he'll kill himself if he really loves you. Sounds like really toxic advice. Yes. (laughs) Yes. He even says, these kids are absolutely out of their fucking minds and they just killed themselves to prove it. I put LOL. Yeah, I mean, great job, guys. Way to, way to stick it to the man. 
he's talking about just like love stories in general in this one. And then how dare he talks about Jimmy Fallon and Drew Barrymore in the Red Sox movie. I can't remember what movie it is, but it's the best movie ever. <laughs> so I like get off your high horse, Mark. <laughs> yeah. I said, shut up. You don't know anything. Oh um, man. <laughs> He said, the problem is that we're finding out that romantic love is kind of like cocaine, like frighteningly similar to cocaine, like stimulates the exact same parts of your brain as cocaine, like gets you high and makes you feel good for a while, but also creates as many problems as it solves as does cocaine. Well, I don't like cocaine, so. (laughs) I don't like cocaine either. Um, (laughs) But yeah, yeah. Everything creates problems, right? Yes. I love his whole talk about romantic love and then he's talking about how we didn't used to do romantic love because that made it hard to like farm and marry the people with the most sheep. (laughs) Man, fantastic. Um, It was. But now we're all pursuing this and setting poor boundaries with our uh, romantic lovers. Like, you can't go out with your friends without me because I get jealous. You have to stay home with me. Or my coworkers are idiots. They always make me late to meetings because I have to do their jobs or tell them how to do their jobs. And then, I can't believe you made me feel so stupid in front of my own sister. Never disagree with me in front of her again. And he's just talking about how in each scenario, one person is trying to make the other person in their relationship take responsibility for emotions that aren't theirs, which is... Like he said, shitty values. You know, you have to... Good values are ones where you're in control of things that you can control. He talks about healthy love is based on two people acknowledging and addressing their own problems with each other's support. There's a difference between healthy and unhealthy. Two things mainly are how well each person in the relationship accepts responsibility and the willingness of each person to both reject and be rejected by their partner. So those go along with it. There is a paragraph that I really liked. In general, entitled people fall into one of two traps in their relationships. Either they expect other people to take responsibility for their problems. I wanted a nice relaxing weekend at home. You should have known that and canceled your plans. Or they take on so much responsibility for the other people's problems. She just lost her job again, but it's probably my fault because I wasn't as supportive as her uh, of her as I could have been. I'm going to help her rewrite. Yeah, and I feel like he isn't trying to say that we can't want to help somebody rewrite their resume and we can't want to cancel our plans and stay home with somebody, but we should want to do those things and not because if we don't do those things, there's going to be a negative reaction from the other person. It's kind of like in the movie, the breakup with Jennifer Aniston and Vince Vaughn, where she wanted him to do the dishes, but he was like, okay, I'll do them. She goes, I don't want you to do them. I want you to want to do them. So he should have taken the initiative to just do it. They want you to want to help, not just do it because we told you. Yes. I really like this. And I feel like this doesn't just apply to like romantic relationships. I feel like it applies to like friendships too, or just like acquaintances, like don't work an extra shift at work because you feel bad because you took your PTO. At the end of 171, people can't solve your problems for you and they shouldn't try because that won't make you happy. And just like you can't solve other people's problems for them either, because likewise won't make you happy. I didn't take very many notes on this. I was just uh, reading it. He's talking about the victim and the saver. Oh, yeah. And then I put on here, which one are you? I actually wrote that I think I could be a victim or a saver depending on the situation. You know, See, I was, that's what I wrote, too. I'm like, what if you can be bold? Comes to Matt, I'm the victim all day. He'll do whatever like I need help with. So, yeah. 
I take advantage of that for sure. But like, I have friends where I feel like I'm the fixer, you know? Mm -hmm. So I'm just a narcissist all around, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) I need to be involved in all the situations. All of them. Before we get to how to build trust, it's, um, uh, he talks about a healthy relationship is not about controlling one another's emotions, but rather about each partner supporting the other in their individual growth and solving their own problems. He says, here's the litmus test. Ask yourself, if I refused this, how would the relationship change? If my partner refused something I wanted, how would the relationship change? If the refusal would cause a blowout, drama, or broken china plates, that's a bad sign for your relationship. It suggests it's conditional and not unconditional. So anyway, food for thought. Food for thought. Now we go to how to build trust. He's talking about how sometimes when his wife comes out of the bathroom, she doesn't look that good and he tells her. And you know what? More men should do this, in my honest opinion. Yeah, I feel like Matt never tells me I look bad, but I come out with four pairs of shoes and he tells me which one works best, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I need an honest opinion. I'm not trying to go out looking crazy. You're the only person who can see this in person. Exactly. (laughs) I guess in our relationships, we value honesty more than feeling good all the time, like Mark does in his relationship. Yep. And that was one thing that I learned, and I was like, oh, that's good to know. This is a big chapter. I know. Like, not long, but meaty. He just talks about a lot of important shit. Did you write a lot of notes on the how to build trust? Trust, and I said, especially in fake-ass America. Um, (laughs) His example is, of course, his wife wouldn't trust him if he said she looked good all the time because she expects him to give an honest answer friendship relationship anything like that like when you're nice to your mother-in-law even though she fucking turns around and talks shit about your parenting all day long yeah page 180 we're talking about cheating and how cheaters have shitty values yeah and how to regain trust and how the only way to really regain trust is a track record and not just believing everything they say right actions speak louder than words which is something that we already know and he's talking about people cheating over shitty values and like breaching trust but then he says like he's just using this example but there's a billion ways that you can breach trust in any relationship and then no matter like what the breach of trust was that happened you have to admit the true values that caused the breach and own up to them and then you have to build back a solid track record of improved behavior over time. But if you don't admit what really caused you to do it, then it doesn't fucking matter. You're never going to fix it. And you're going to keep doing it. Yep. And then he says, trust is like a china plate. If you break it once with some care and attention, you can put it back together again. But if you break it again, it splits into even more pieces and it takes far longer to piece together again. And if you break it more and more times, eventually it shatters to the point where it's impossible to restore. And then it's dust. Then you're screwed. Yeah. Because you think commitment means that, like, you don't have freedom. Right. Most people are, like, ball and chain, being tied down. They don't want to be committed. But he's saying that we're often happier with less. When we aren't overloaded with opportunities and options, we won't suffer the paradox of choice. Because he says if you have a choice between two places to live and you pick one, you'll likely feel confident and comfortable that you made the right choice. You'll be satisfied with your decision. But if you have a choice among 28 places to live and pick one, the paradox of the choices says that you'll likely spend years agonizing, doubting, and second-guessing yourself 
wondering if you really made the right choice and if you're truly maximizing your own happiness and this anxiety, this desire for certainty and perfection and success will make you unhappy. And so he's basically trying to tell us that we need to commit. We decided that we made this choice. This is what was going to be best for us. This is the problems that we decided that we were going to have to, we were going to have, and we're just going to dive in and stop thinking about those other options because let's just pretend they're not options. I really like this on 181. There are some experiences in life that you can only have if you live somewhere for five years or if you've been with a person for over a decade or you've worked on the same skill or craft for half your lifetime. So like in Colorado, experiences that I've had there, someone that lived there one year isn't going to have those. Or in my relationship, there's experiences in the 12 years that we've been together that people that have been together for a year probably would never imagine going through within that year. Yeah, that's true. This paragraph, he's talking about diminishing returns, which I love. This is an economic concept, but it really applies everywhere. Um, And it's just that the first time you do something, it's amazing. And the next time you do something, it's slightly less amazing. And the next time you do something, it's slightly less amazing. And the 50th time you do it, it's like, meh. And then the 100th time you do it, it's like, really meh. You know, it adds less and less joy each time that you do it. And that adds, it goes the same for material possessions, money, hobbies, jobs, friends, and romantic sexual partners, he says. They're all lame, superficial values that people choose for themselves. And Each time you take on a new partner, it's going to be a little bit less exciting than the first time you took on a new partner. He says, commitment gives you freedom because you're no longer distracted by the unimportant, frivolous things. Commitment allows you to focus intently on a few highly important goals and achieve a greater degree of success than you otherwise would. Commitment makes decision-making easier and removes any fear of missing out. Knowing that what you already have is good enough, why would you ever stress about chasing more, more, more again? It's really good. I like that. It, is. it reminds me of Ted Lasso, you know? Mm-hmm. All right. So are we ready to go to chapter nine and then Wendy, we die? Yeah. When do you want to tell me how you feel about it? After we go through it or before? Let's, let's go through this real quick. And then I'm just going to tell you what my whole takeaway is from the book. Okay. So in chapter nine, he has a friend. They're at a house party and they're talking about this cliff that overlooks water. And his friend says, seek the truth for yourself and I'll meet you there right before he dies. Well, he is really drunk, jumps off this cliff, dies in the water because his legs cramp up because he drank too much alcohol. And Mark is mourning. And in his mourning, he just kind of becomes a lazy couch potato. And he's having dreams about his friend. And his friend says, why do you care that I'm dead when you're still afraid to live? And so that kind of... (laughs) I noted right there that dream Josh is so rude. (laughs) So Mark decided that he was going to change how he lived and he went to school and he started to travel and he says in the face of the inevitability of death, there is no reason to ever give in to one's fear or embarrassment or shame since it's all just a bunch of nothing anyway. And that by spending the majority of my short life avoiding what was painful and uncomfortable, I had essentially been avoiding being alive at all. I love that. And I feel like honestly... I went through this too, and maybe everybody does after like their first like really devastating loss of somebody or like every time you lose somebody really close to you where you're just numb for some time. And I really like him saying that there's no reason not to do anything because everything's arbitrary anyways, which is something I really think. It is. And this chapter kind of like, I don't know. I kind of liked it. I kind of didn't like it. I'm a person that's like terrified of death. My first panic attack I've ever had I was really young I think I was before 10 and I just remember it so in depth because I was just thinking about death and I was thinking about my mom dying 
And I just started having a panic attack and I went to her and I was like, I don't want you to die. I don't want you to die. And like, it was just like, so, so much more likely to happen now though, Kayla. (laughs) I know, I know. And he even says death scares us. And because it scares us, we avoid thinking about it, talking about it, sometimes even acknowledging it. And even when it's happening to someone close to us yet in bizarre backwards way, death is the light by which the shadow of all life's meaning is measured. Without death, everything would feel inconsequential, all experience arbitrary, all metrics and values suddenly zero. Okay, so you're telling us that, like, having somebody die, like, opens up all your senses to all this shit. But, Mark, when did you do all the womanizing and traveling? Because it was after this. Yeah. So what's your point? Because it seems less pointy to me. It does seem less pointy. And then I also feel like that's so fucking traumatic. And... It sounds to me more like him giving up weed and cigarettes and doing all of this stuff and going to college for a very short time. Or maybe he like finished his degree or whatever, but it didn't like change his whole freaking life. What changed his life was the trips to everywhere. It seems to me more like he dove into a distraction because he was dealing with grief and he's passing it off as some enlightening. Please stop trying to make my timeline messed up because it's off here. It's off. (laughs) Well, I think, and I think it's closer to the end about this trip to South Africa. Which Ugh, I'll that talk privileged about that. ass trip. Yeah. So something beyond ourselves. This is when he talks about basically like our egos and when we die, like ourselves don't die, just our bodies do. And like we go on and live like some other makes sense. I actually think about this sometimes because I think that's why those little fuckers, the dogs and the cats can just close their eyes and fall asleep like that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Must be yeah. nice. That's what I think, too. Becker calls it death terrors when we realize, like, we get a deep existential – why does he keep saying that word? We get deep anxiety that underlies everything we think or do. So I remember – and even when I talk about death, like, everything starts getting black. I can't breathe. I have to walk around. I have to, like, seriously think about something really, really hard to get my mind off of thinking about it because it's just too crazy. And then the second one is what I had mentioned before, that our conceptual self, our identity, and how we see ourselves isn't what dies. That's interesting. We're remembered for generations, you know? I've heard that you're basically forgotten after four generations. Once you've died and, like, three more generations move on, like, nobody, even from your own family, is really going to remember you. So, like, people, like, politicians stay in power forever to, like, have a legacy that's cemented. Like, that's what Trump's doing. That's what Putin's doing right now with this war. You know, everybody thinks he's sick. He's about to die. He's got to, you know, capture Ukraine to make sure that his legacy is cemented. It's going to be cemented as a fucking idiot. (laughs) And um, (laughs) so I feel like he's talking about how this isn't a good idea to do this immortality projects. Yeah. Because we're putting value into making sure that other people remember us. Right? Yeah. But then in two pages, he says that we need to decide what our legacy is going to be. So do we not put value into how people are going to remember us or do we? Because I'm fucking confused. I think maybe like we put it into what our values are. And instead of doing things like starting a war for no reason or holding power for so long, we should do things like helping people and like maybe opening a nonprofit, helping the homeless, helping animal shelters, like maybe those type of immortality projects, maybe like your values on how you leave your legacy behind, if that makes sense. Yeah, I'm, I'm with Good you on all of evil. that. But not everybody can do shit like that. Yeah. I feel like everybody should be going for like very, very low legacies. Like didn't cheat on his wife ever. Yeah. Was always, always had integrity. 
because yeah. that's something that we can actually control. I can't guarantee that I can open a nonprofit because that requires banks to approve me and a bunch of other stuff. So yeah. I just don't love that we're being told that we need to come up with a legacy, but also to not care. Yeah. Because legacying sense. sounds a lot like trying to me. It does. It does. He says the way to overcome this immortality project is with the bitter antidote, where you accept that death is bad, but it's also inevitable. So don't avoid that realization. Just come to terms with it as best you can. Try to be comfortable with our own death. With this thought, Mark decides to go on a little trippy trip to a cave, to a cliff in South Africa. The Cape of Hope. Yep. Cape of Good Hope. He closes the chapter on grieving and maybe... He doesn't say it for sure, but I think this is when he changes his life because he climbs a rock. He gets all the way to the edge of the rock. He basically like hangs off the side of the rock and meditates. And he talks about like his body going through anxiety and what your body feels like when it's going to die. He's and doing so like that fear therapy stuff where you like immerse yourself in the thing that makes you scared and you just sit there with your anxiety for a while until it calms down a little bit and then you can give yourself a break and then you do it again and then the next time you're anxious for a little less time and he's doing that at the top of a very high cliff and see that's crazy to me that is crazy to me um on page 198 dissolving one's ego into an expansive nothingness achieving enlightened state of nirvana so this is what he's learning from his death therapy and his meditation of hanging off of a cliff basically he is sitting there thinking like no one cares about me no one cares that I'm sitting up here no one even knows that I'm here and one thing that he talks about Mark Twain says the fear of death follows from the fear of life a man who lives fully is prepared to die at any time I really liked that quote from Mark Twain that's a good one that is I couldn't do the thing that he's doing on the cliff like not only because I would like probably pass out from anxiety and fall over the edge of the cliff but I'd be so scared someone was gonna push me off yeah I would too like (laughs) one good wind gust yeah and I fall down like on regular occasion people see it I just be tripping over air While most people whittle their days chasing another buck or a little bit more fame and attention or a little bit more assurance that they're right or loved, death confronts us all with far more painful and important question. What is your legacy? So yeah, you just talked about that. But also this kind of goes back to like, we didn't mention this, but Mark mentions this. Mark has a wealthy family. So he's kind of already privileged in the point that a regular person is not privileged in this way to be able to go somewhere to experience this, to confront themselves with death. So sometimes I feel like this book is for a specific type of person. Yeah. I mean, no offense, Mark. I just feel like you're kind of leaving out like regular working class people in a lot of this. This whole Cape trip is very privileged because most of us cannot confront death looking off the top of a cliff because we have jobs we have kids we can't go to south africa yeah and i just didn't like how he says what's your legacy and then he goes on to say how will the world be different and better when you're gone what mark will you have made what influence will you have caused they say that a butterfly flapping its wings in africa can cause a hurricane in florida well what hurricanes will you leave in your wake and i just feel like this is so backwards to everything that he said in this book because Why are we putting value into what everybody else is going to remember about us? How can we guarantee that other people will remember us? That's a bad value, isn't it? Changes like the way people choose to live. Like some people are childless. Some people, when they die, they don't have kids. So guess what they leave behind? They probably have sisters and nephews and stuff, but the nephews probably aren't going to remember them like that. I don't like 
I'm sure lots of charities and shit are good, good, good to their core. But if I've decided that my legacy is I need to start a nonprofit and that's the only way that I'm going to be remembered, don't you think I'm going to do whatever the fuck I need to do to make that happen? Do you watch Ozark? Because they're starting a nonprofit and they are crazy. They're not good. Yeah. Chapter nine, just I just hate the way he closed out. I just feel like it was really flip floppy. And if he would have stopped on chapter eight, I would have taken a lot more away from this book. Chapters one through eight, like really, they told me a lot. On page 200, we need to believe that we're a contributing opponent to some much larger entity, that your life is but a mere side process of some unintelligible production. And that feels entitled to me. Because didn't he just tell us two chapters ago to not think that we're so important that something special is happening to us? Yeah, and then even on page 201 at the end of it, it says you are great already, whether you realize it or not. But what if I have shitty values? Then he just talks about how this guy is like, are you okay? And he smiles. He walks up to him. He says, I was seeing you at the end of the cliff. How was it? Mark says it was beautiful. And then the dude says, is everything okay? How are you feeling? And Mark says, alive. Very good for him. I'm glad that he had this big transformation. Me too. Um, I do feel like Mark missed the mark a couple times <laughs> um, in this book. Yeah. I feel like we both really liked Crawdads. This book, I would probably rate a 6 out of 10, only because while it helped me a lot, I feel like I've come, maybe come around as a better person, or not even a better person. There's things in my life that I'm going to start doing more of, influence from this book, but I think, like, it just kind of missed the mark in some way. I completely agree with you. I would probably give it like an eight. I was hanging on his every word from chapters one through eight. The way chapter nine rounded everything out just missed for me because I felt like it was really contradicting a lot of the points that he made in earlier chapters and just felt very entitled. Like a good friend of mine died in a terrible way and I got over it in three months and you two can just quit your life and move on. But I don't want to shit on Mark because maybe that worked for him. Probably won't work for me. But I think I'm going to reread this book because he gave me a lot of good questions to ask myself while I'm being self-aware that are already helping me. You know, I, I really liked the don't try concept. I feel like putting pressure on myself to try to do a million things that don't really matter is dumb. And I really like the setting boundaries portion. Stop trying to put so much stock into other people's reactions and put more into your own reactions, you know? Yeah. So for those reasons, it's an eight for me. I will probably reread it while we're driving to Vegas. See if I get another take. You guys are driving? Yes. That's awful. I I don't like it. I'd rather just be in the car. Also, I can catch up on podcasts and shit. Yeah. (laughs) And I can't vape on the plane. True. (laughs) Do you think you'll reread this book? No, I won't. <laughs> I will Absolutely not. not ever. Nope. What was your biggest takeaway? Um, I think my biggest takeaway is that focusing on the problems that I want. I like to get caught up in thinking about problems that don't exist yet, like if my HOA is going to be cunty whenever we move. And instead, maybe I should be focusing on the problems that come from the businesses I'm trying to start and things that I want to do every day. You know? I like that. Yeah. What's your biggest takeaway besides chapter nine sucked? It was like the final season of Game of Thrones. (laughs) I would say my biggest takeaway is just putting my effort into caring about like choosing what I care about. So like I used to be like really like uptight about work and like, oh, my God, I'm not good enough and caring about that. And I felt like maybe I neglected Sebastian too much. And now my because of this book, my priorities have shifted like. Even though chapter nine sucked, I still feel like I got something from it. I interpreted it differently. Like, 
maybe spending more time with Sebastian. So he'll maybe want to bring his kids around me or something along those lines. If he has kids, he doesn't have to have kids. He can choose whatever he wants to do. My That's important to say because, you know, some parents disagree. Yeah. Yeah. My priorities have switched. I like that. And I completely agree. Like, I'm really thinking about, does this really, should I be mad about this right now? Should I be worried about this right now? Is this my problem? Is this someone else's problem? Is this a problem I even need to have to achieve whatever I'm trying to achieve? Like, I've been thinking like that so much since I started reading this book. And I like that. I hope I keep doing it. Well, good. Maybe we'll check back in like six months and see where we're at with that from then. Right. And if I never pick up another self-help book again, then fuck it. I'm not even trying. I'm just taking (laughs) Mark's advice and not trying. There we go. But I have one that we should read. It's called Untamed. You should look it up. Ooh. Should we talk about the next book we're going to do? Yeah, let's do it. I mean, we decided to read Moss. I I don't know if it's Mouse, Mouse. I think I'm probably going to end up just saying Mouse because I'm from America, from the United States, and I don't know how to pronounce things. But um, I've been calling it Mouse, so I think that's good. We're going to do a quick intro up for this book next week, but I think... When we do the first real episode, we should probably... Do you want to read the whole book in one go or do you want to split it in half? It's 155 pages. Oh, can we split it in half, please? I think that's good. So we'll read the first three chapters for our first real episode. Next week, we'll be here with an intro episode and we'll talk more about when our next episode will air then. I think that's all we've got. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Bye.